Hello and welcome to episode 1325 of the Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. How are you? Hello. Back-to-back Jeff intros. That's something. Don't get used to it. It's, we're not, <laughs> not going to keep this up. I'm a lot more uncomfortable leading. Anyway, later on this podcast, and actually very shortly on this podcast, we don't have a lot to banter about. We will be joined by David Marver of at Change the Padres on Twitter, also uh, co-host of the Quintelligence podcast to talk about the Padres. This was a weekend where there was an article dropped in the San Diego Union Tribune where the Padres allegedly were said to have opened their books for public consumption. And we're going to talk to David about how that is and is not true and the state of the Padres, what the state of the Padres has been before we get to the Padres. Always a favorite team to talk about. The Padres. Someone should talk about the Padres. We have a... Well, you have, I think, at least a couple things to talk about. One, I overstated my case. I made a, a grave mistake <laughs> last week. Williams Astadio's yes. winter is not complete because I forgot I told you. one of the conditions. <laughs> you said we weren't going to talk about him until the season uh, started or something, and we didn't make it one episode. I, <laughs> I am an idiot. To that. <laughs> I'm an idiot because I forgot about the rules of the Venezuelan Winter League where when a team is eliminated <laughs> in the next round, the team is still alive. Get the draft players. And Williams yep. Astadio has been drafted for the championship by the Cardinales de Lada. He will be playing against, I don't know, the other team that's in there. I don't care where the other team is. I only care about Astadio's team. So Williams Astadio, after having been eliminated from the playoffs, will remain in the playoffs as he competes for the championship. What do you think the vibe is in the club? I mean, look, the clubhouses are different every year. It's the Winter League. It's not mm-hmm. like team chemistry is the same as we might talk about it in the major leagues. But what do you think it's like for a player to just show up for between four to seven games and try to win a team a championship? But the, like if he if yeah. he were to hit a walk off home run, for example, in game seven, the most dramatic home run possible, would his celebration be any different than had he hit it for his own team that he'd been with for the three months prior? Yeah, probably not. I don't know. Maybe you just get into the spirit of the thing. But yeah, it would be hard not to feel like a mercenary, I would think. That's why, in general, I don't really like this idea of drafting players from defeated teams in the playoffs, but I think that it's great that Williams Estadio can keep playing. Now, in this case, he is joining the team that lost Luis Valbuena and Jose Castillo earlier this season in the accident. Well, not really accident, but tragedy that we discussed on the podcast. And because they lost two of their best hitters or their two best hitters in that way, They especially needed someone like Williams Estadio. I can't think of anyone better not only to bring in to fill a a hole in the lineup, but also just to cheer people up than Williams Estadio. So they managed to make it to the finals despite suffering that. I would think that means this is a, a good story surrounding this team, despite the terrible story that enveloped it earlier this season. So, Williams Estadio, hopefully he can bring some joy back into the hearts of fans of the Cardinalis. So, I think the only other thing that's really happened this weekend, assuming you don't want to talk about Martin Perez signing a contract with the Twins, because I know that I don't. (laughs) Sonny Gray is seemingly about to be traded. What remains unclear is exactly where. It seems, as we are recording this, Sonny Gray, I think there is an agreement between the Yankees and the Reds. And I understand this will be published probably after the deadline, so I don't know exactly what's going to mm-hmm. happen. But it seems as if, based on reports, the Reds are trying to sign contract year player Sonny Gray to a contract extension. And if they can't do that, then maybe the trade will be modified or maybe Gray will be sent to another team because other reports say that the Yankees have reached other agreements with some other teams. I guess there can only be one, right? There can only <laughs> be one other agreement. Yeah. You can't all get Sonny Gray. But 
if teams were to share Sonny Gray, whatever, it seems like it would be most beneficial for him to not be in New York anymore. I One of the things about Sonny Gray that just really jumps out the page, whenever you see an article talking about like single year home road splits, I always just ignore them because that's like, that's so sabermetrics 15 years ago. I generally don't care, but have you looked at Sonny Gray's home road splits from this past season? Nope. Great. Name a statistic. <laughs> what would you like? <laughs> what split would you like me to start with here? TOPS plus, obviously. All right. Well, then I should open up that page <laughs> because I was looking at Fangraphs. Sonny Gray. Okay. So let's go with TOPS plus for the year 2018. So Gray started, I think, a, a roughly equal number of games when he was at home. 286 plate appearances on the road, 296 plate appearances at home, a TOPS plus of 142. At home, Sonny Gray allowed a weighted on base of 399. On the road, 274. At home, an ERA of 6.98. On the road, an ERA of 3.17. At home, a FIP of 5.98. On the road, a FIP of 2. 0.65 at home a strikeout minus walk rate of four percent on the road a strikeout minus walk rate of 19 <laughs> percent sunny gray genuinely last season one of the worst pitchers in baseball in new york and a legitimately really good pitcher starting pitcher on the road i still assume it doesn't really mean anything but you look at the way that the Yankees have handled Sonny Gray, and this has been uncommon, right? Because they have basically decided, and even said to the public, we think it would be best if we just moved on from this. The Yankees yeah. seem to have come to the conclusion that Sonny Gray actually is really uncomfortable pitching in New York, or at least pitching with the Yankees. Yeah, it does seem just from their public comments, and Brian Cashman said at the start of this offseason, basically, yeah, we're going to trade Sonny Gray, which doesn't seem like the, the greatest thing from a leverage perspective, just to announce that you're going to deal the guy. But maybe it was just so obvious to everyone that they figured there'd be more benefit to just telling interested suitors, hey, make your best offer, than there would be in pretending that they were ever going to keep him. So, yeah, I mean, when you look at his full season, I mean, you think it's like a total disaster season and they took him out of the rotation and they didn't want him pitching playoff games. And then you look at the numbers and, you know, he had like a 4.17 FIP and a better X FIP and was like basically a average Fangraphs war in only 130 innings. So clearly there's still something there. Like his strikeout rate was still as high as it's ever been. And he still gets ground balls half the time and his control wasn't great. But, you know, there's still clearly a lot to like there. And he is only 29 years old. So you wouldn't think that like a pitcher would go from the Yankees to the Reds and get better. If anything, you would think the opposite. Like the Yankees are one of these teams that's good at optimizing players and using the data to find things that would make the player even better. And the Reds have not been that team. The Reds have been the team that trades guys and then those guys go on to be better with other teams. But in this particular case, maybe there is something to the New York narrative. I mean, there has been something to that with some players in the past, and I always hesitate to say that it's something with any particular player because you're saying that the player has some sort of psychological hang-up when really we're talking about small samples here, and it could very well statistically be meaningless. But if the team is behaving that way, maybe they know something we don't. 
Right, and now I should uh, I should tell you I looked uh, using the play index looking all time. I guess this is like an early stat blast. Looking all time from 1908 to 2018, minimum of 50 innings pitched at home, all time split. Sunny Gray just had the 11th highest home TOPS plus, so that would be the 11th worst home road split at least by this metric now. Still nowhere close to 1914 Dave Davenport's TOPS plus of 179 pitching for. Whoever the hell he pitched for. Uh, more recently in 2013, Marco Estrada had a TOPS plus of 168 in 2013. So I just got to pull that up for a little easy browsing. 2013, Estrada pitched for the Brewers. He had a season ERA of 3.87. Uh, so let's, let's dig a little deeper. What uh, what happened to Marco Estrada in 2013? So more meaningful home road split. So Estrada... Wow. Estrada in 2013 had nine starts at home in the area of 6.62 on the road in the area of 2.09. Marco Estrada mm-hmm. was a lot better on the road. And the next season, he uh, he got worse. So Marco yeah. Estrada, anyway, he's kind of uh, gone back and forth. But there there is a somewhat interesting case because now, again, as I mentioned, the Yankees have seemingly concluded it's time to move on from Sonny Gray. And realistically, they're out of room in their pitching staff. Anyway, because they just have better or more expensive pitchers or they have qualified relievers. But in 2016, Tyler Chatwood, I know he was pitching for Colorado at the time, but let's just look past that. In 2016, Tyler Chatwood at home had an ERA of 6.12. And on the road, in an equal number of innings, he had an ERA of 1.69. He was <laughs> extremely good away from Colorado. He was much better. And uh, I think that this is one of the things that the Cubs were banking on. When they signed Tyler Chatwood for three years and $38 million, they thought, well, of course, Tyler Chatwood has this really good stuff, and he'll be more comfortable pitching away from Colorado, like anybody would be more comfortable pitching away from Colorado. I wonder what happened yeah. is that he was dreadful. He was absolutely <laughs> fell on his face for any number of reasons. And so these things are never quite as predictable as you think. As you already said, Cincinnati hardly the first ballpark you think of for a, a soft landing for a player. But one of the things that I think there must be there must be some sort of amendment now that whenever you talk about Sonny Gray and the Reds, you have to talk about his college pitching coach, who is the Reds pitching coach. So Derek Johnson, the Reds pitching coach, was Sonny Gray's pitching coach in college, and Sonny Gray then became a first round draft pick. And it feels kind of like how the the Phillies hired like one of Manny Machado's mentors or something, a former coach a few years ago, and of course the White Sox have signed John Jay and acquired Yonder Alonso, like buddies or in one case the brother-in-law of Manny Machado it feels like it's kind of the same idea but like I understand Sonny Gray has a pre-existing relationship with Derek Johnson and and that could be good because he was a good pitcher then but other than maybe the Astros is there a team that seems better at player development than the Yankees there's certainly no team that invests more in the player improvement department I think than the Yankees Mm -hmm. and the Yankees couldn't get Sonny Gray straightened out so are we going to put this in the lap of just a pre-existing relationship from like seven years ago. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, every now and then you do hear that like so-and-so got away from what was working for him before. And then he just reconnected with some old coach and he looked at video and reminded him of what he was doing when he was pitching well. And all they had to do was go back to that. So that has happened, I think, but would I bank on it? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the Astros, the Dodgers, the Yankees, these teams that have shown some skill for making players better. The Reds are not that kind of team. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. You mentioned the ballpark. And is Great American Ballpark, is that 
It's almost, it feels like in the Minute Maid category of like overblown in terms of how much of a hitter's park it is. It's not in the Minute Maid category because Minute Maid is like really not a hitter's park at all. And people still think of it as one as it's a pitcher's park, if anything, now. But Great American Ballpark is not like a band box. It kind of has this reputation. Like if you look at, let's say, Fangraph's three-year park factors, so using data from the past three seasons and great american ballpark looks like it's the i think 11th in terms of inflating runs so kind of middle of the pack and certainly relative to yankee stadium yankee stadium is right up there at fourth along with you know colorado and texas and boston and actually then progressive field which i would not have expected and then the yankees and so i don't know if you look at the five-year the reds are higher if you look at the one year the reds are higher but there is this perception that that's like an incredibly hard place to pitch or you know yasiel puig's gonna go there and hit 50 homers or something because it's such a hitter friendly park and it, it is but i don't think it is to the extent that people think of it that way right no it's not and it's it's interesting because you you brought him in a mid and if you look at just the home run park factors then great american ballpark is tied for the fourth highest home run park factors behind yankee state Stadium. It's behind Citizens Bank, it's behind Coors Field, and it's tied with Miller Park. But there's a difference, of course, between home run park factor and an overall park factor, because it turns out Great American Ballpark is also tied, and I can't explain this, I think we've never been able to explain this, but it's tied for the highest strikeout park factor. Strikeouts go uh-huh. up in Cincinnati for reasons that are completely unknown to me. So anyway, it will be, it's actually going to be a more pitcher-friendly environment for Sonny Gray than the Yankee Stadium if he actually does go Mm -hmm. to Cincinnati, but that much, at least as of this recording, remains unclear. The Reds are rumored to be giving up prospect Shed Long and a... A, uh, one of the tradable draft picks, which is not the first-round draft pick, but I believe is currently the 37th overall draft pick, so a near first-rounder, or maybe semantically still a first-rounder, I don't really know, but it's a relatively heavy haul for a pitcher who recently was bad. <laughs> And Mm -hmm. so we'll see if the Reds actually agree to do this if they don't get a contract extension with Sonny Gray lined up, because then it would just be another one-year addition to a Cincinnati team that still profiles as maybe the fifth best in its own division. So what do you think, philosophically, we've spent so much time thinking about teams not trying to win or not trying the hardest? And the Reds are a team that seems to be making an effort to try to win, but there is the downside of they're bad, or at least they're not as good (laughs) as the Cardinals, the Brewers, and the Cubs, and maybe they're about even with the Pirates. So what do you make of the Reds' activity? Yeah, I don't know. They have made themselves more interesting, I suppose, in that they have watchable players who would keep them out of being truly terrible, and that's a plus, but I don't think it gets them any closer to winning the NL Central or even really being a wildcard contender. I guess you could sort of squint, and if they get gray, you could kind of imagine where everything goes right, and maybe they win 80-something games and are in the running. I, I just... Everything really would have to go right, and they're in exactly the wrong division to be making any sort of run with a mediocre team at this point. So I just don't see it. I mean, maybe they're not really setting themselves back that much. I I don't know. I, I guess they're not trading like they're 
a number one top prospect types. And so maybe they're just trying to make themselves more watchable while they bide their time for certain prospects to get good and really build a a more sustainable winner. But I just, I don't know. It's a, it's an improvement, I guess, relative to where the Reds have been recently, but I still don't get the sense that they have that coherent a plan or at least that it's coming together this quickly. Yeah, as I as I look at the Reds, I can you can squint and kind of see a Braves thing going on if Joey Votto plays the part of Freddie Freeman and uh, of course Eugenio Suarez is one of the more underrated, really really great players in the game today. I realize now we're talking a lot about the Reds with philosophically this episode is backwards, and then we're talking about the Padres. <laughs> wow, I don't, this is I mean we're recording this on a holiday, so maybe no one will listen. But then you have I think the big wild card for the Reds to say nothing of any of their pitchers is going to be Nick Senzel, who at least according to rumors his other teams have, have wanted. I think specifically the Padres have wanted Senzel according to reports, but the Reds have not traded him yet. And he is a very good player who in his minor league career has a 904 OPS. Mm-hmm. He is good. He might play some center field even this season. He's kind of, in a sense, blocked at his regular position by Suarez, but he can move around. He's young. He's the athletic. You know, he's uh, maybe he could end up being part of the MVP machine as he uh, (laughs) learns through analytics how to move around and make himself defensively (laughs) capable. So, you know, if Senzel comes up and he does the Ronald Acuna thing or the Juan Soto thing, then congratulations, Reds. You have another team that can hit really well and maybe pitch a little bit. I think you and I both like Luis Castillo in the rotation. But even with the additions that they have made or are trying to make to the rotation, it's still a rotation that would go. Mm -hmm. Luis Castillo, Anthony Tisclafani. I guess you would put Sonny Gray third or Alex Wood third. I don't know. The other one's fourth and Tanner Roark is in there and still not a complete looking team, (laughs) but you can at least see, I guess you can see 80s win total in the 80s and maybe that's enough to justify some long-term resource depletion. Mm -hmm. They've done enough to get us to talk about them multiple times this offseason and each time we're like, I don't know, is this going to work? But hey, we're bringing them up on the podcast, which is something that we haven't really done. We have been notorious for not doing just because they have not really forced us to talk about them. So that's a change. I guess that's a change for the better. Yeah, I got nothing else to say about the Reds. Let's uh, we 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 can see if the Reds actually get something great. Maybe in the next episode, wrong. we'll talk about more implications. All right, so we'll take a quick break and finances and Padres and the sorry the history and in some ways sorry present, but out so promising well, future. Well, Nate Colbert will be referenced at least once. <laughs> I think just the once, yeah. but I, yeah, I believe so that stick is. Stick around. In the past, Ben and I have talked fairly often about whether things would be better if baseball team ownership groups opened up the books. And over over the weekend for the San Diego Union-Tribune, Kevin Acey, a reporter, wrote an article where the Padres allegedly, according to the Padres at least, opened their books so that they could be discussed and shared with the public. Now, 
that has caused a little bit of a, I don't know if a firestorm, but there's a, there's a lively discussion that has taken place around the article, and one of the people who has helped to lead that discussion is David Barber, at Change the Padres on Twitter, also the co-host of the Intelligence podcast, talking about the San Diego Padres. So, David, hello. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for coming on. So I guess the first question I should ask you is, did the Padres really open their books? No, no. And this is the misnomer that's, that drove me crazy at the beginning. Um, I used an analogy on our podcast, which was, you know, it's, it's like you're playing poker with someone and they start talking about their cards at the table. And maybe they're telling you they have a two in their hand, you know, and, and that's not them showing your cards, right? I mean, if they were wanted to show you their cards, they would just show you their cards. So for me, it's the Padres talking a little bit about their books to, to a willing journalist who will basically regurgitate whatever they put in front of them. And so... You know, it's it might be a, a potential look in the books, but to say it's an actual opening of the books and that we're getting a look into the books is not necessarily true, right? I mean, if 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 they wanted us to do that, they would just show us the books. But right, mm-hmm. yeah. So beware of baseball owners bearing financial figures, I guess, because what they are showing you is probably not the whole picture. So can you sort of summarize for people who haven't read the article, which we will of course link to? What did the Padres present here or what did they claim to have presented? Yeah, so there's a number of figures in the article. So so basically, Kevin Acey released an article and, and the purpose of it, I believe, is for the Padres to explain to their fans why they're not active this offseason. I'm not sure why it's this offseason they've decided to do this. Perhaps there's more unrest than, than normal. But in any case, in the article, they, they go through a number of reasons why they believe they shouldn't spend yet. And, and that, you know, their hypothesis here is that it's wise for them to wait until they have, you know, a decent team and then supplement it with veteran players. But some of the excuses they use therein are not very salient to Padres fans. Uh, one of the biggest ones is that they've basically been saddled with this heavy ballpark deck structure. So for those of you not familiar, when the Padres built the new stadium or had the new stadium built in conjunction with the city in 2004, it opened and since then, you know, they haven't spent basically according to what they had promised before the stadium was built. Another big reason why the stadium was built was that the Padres had threatened to leave San Diego if they didn't get a new stadium. And now in this article, unfortunately, they're blaming some of that debt structure and the interest payments on that debt for why they haven't been able to spend money on the major league roster. And, you know, that's a major portion of it. There's, there's, It's a pretty long article. Um, another area that they, they hit on are the lessons the team learned in 2015. That takes a lot to unpack everything, but there's a lot in here. But mainly it's just an excuse for why they currently aren't spending. And if you go through it line by line, which we did on our podcast, it's not necessarily the most – the logic doesn't entirely make sense. But that's the, that's the gist of the article. Mm-hmm. And as Joshian pointed out in his newsletter, and maybe other people have pointed out elsewhere, the team claimed that they were not taking any debt when they purchased the team. So you go back to statements they made August 29th, 2012, and you have Ron Fowler saying that the purchase of the Padres is an all-cash deal. We are not taking on any debt, said Fowler. The new ownership group is oversubscribed. In terms of debt outside of the ballpark, the Padres have less today than they had yesterday, said Peter Seidler. So this was you know, over six years ago, and the Padres were claiming not to be taking on any significant debt, and now they're saying that the significant debt has been holding them back. Now, he did say outside of the ballpark, so maybe there was a lot of ballpark-related debt, but even if you use the numbers in the article about the debt, 
it doesn't seem like they're that big by baseball team standards. Like, what are they, like 12 million or, you know, something like that where it's kind of onerous, but not really if you have the, the kind of budget and the kind of revenue and valuation that a baseball team does. Yeah. And, and that's part of the, you know, the article that was pretty maddening. They, they mentioned the exact payment uh, that they're making on this interest and in, in debt over time. And, you know, as a Padres fan, I think our complaint about payroll isn't that, you know, it's, it's 85 million. Our, our complaint has been that it's not 135 million, right? And the amount they're paying on this debt is somewhere between eight and 12 million a year based on the figures in the article. You know, that would only increase payroll to, you know, the mid nineties and it's 2019. And, you know, it's, it, I guess for us, that's not really a great excuse because it doesn't rectify how far away they are from, you know, not even league average, which I don't think we really expect them to get to league average, but maybe close to it. It's just, you know, it's a staggering figure how far the way they are and the amount they're actually paying on this debt is so small in comparison to how far away they are. So I'm not sure if they just kind of missed the ball in terms of how much we, you know, how far away we think they are and, and they thought this explained it all or, or what the deal was. But yeah, going back to, you know, the the point you made about Ron Fowler's initial statements when they got the team. The other part of that is that Ron Fowler was part of the Jeff Morad minor ownership group. And so he was aware of all this, you know, prior to becoming the spokesperson for the new ownership group and continuing to invest his money, part of the upfront television money the Padres got from Fox Sports San Diego into his ownership share. I mean, these are all things that were known variables to him when he decided to go forward with the purchase. And so now to look back on it and say, we can't spend as a result, you know, the one conclusion I think we all draw is that maybe you shouldn't be an owner. But yeah, it's, it's been a frustrating day or series of days for, for Padres fans here. One of, one of the sections in the article discusses when A.J. Preller and the Padres tried to rapidly build up in, in 2015. And of course, that was, a, that was a failed experiment, at least in the way that it was executed. And, and you can understand why a team might change direction after, after that. There was, of course, the whole Matt Kemp trade. There was a, the whole litany of moves. We didn't have to go over them line by line. But there's something... That that struck me near the bottom of the article. Maybe this is out of sequence. It doesn't really matter. How, there, something just jumped out to me off the page, and this is this is talking about the people in charge of the Padres. And it says, uh, "quote The fifty to sixty hours the pair spends each fall winnowing down numbers and lining up budget projections serve to convince them splurging for a player before the right time is the wrong thing." Now, this is the penultimate paragraph of the article. Maybe it's used not so much directly, but maybe it's used at least in part to justify why the team isn't, for example, bidding on Manny Machado, as uh, as would seem to be befitting of the roster. But how do you even reconcile having that paragraph in an article like this and have the Eric Hosmer signing last offseason for $144 million? How how does that go unmentioned? I'm, I'm saying this as if I'm accusing you of writing the article, but how... How, how do you say that with a straight face with Hosmer on the roster for another seven years? Yeah, I don't know. And when we were on the podcast, we broke down that sentence line for line, actually. We said, because <laughs> it says the 50 to 60 hours a pair spends each fall, which would obviously, you know, include more than one fall, which would include last fall, which is prior to signing Hosmer. So what happened there? Was it an, an impulsive buy? Did Hosmer's contract fall into a range where they were comfortable doing it? Or is this... You know, what we mostly believe that this is just a whole hunk of baloney and this is just kind of them being a little bit uh, trying to come out with something that will make them look smart as to why they're not spending as opposed to just cheap. And so they've thrown together these excuses. And if you actually read through all the pieces, it doesn't really fit together with what's really happened over time. And yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the lines in there that bugs us. I think using 2015 as 
you know, throughout the article, they talk about how Ron Fowler learned a lesson about 2015 and how spending money, you know, it will bring in some incremental revenue, but it won't necessarily cover the cost of all the new players. And, you know, the whole point for us is, well, it was a pretty poor plan in 2015. They tried to shove all of their free agent cramming into one offseason as opposed to steadily building up a roster over time. And in one offseason, you have very limited choices, right? There's only a handful of players available. They might not be values by your analytics. And many other teams in the trade market know you're trying to you know, add payroll. And so you're not going to get quite as much leverage on those deals. And so what you see is in 2015 is a result of basically trying to rush the process in one offseason. And I think that's, a, that's one of the main things that we're struggling with is the fact that the strategy that's outlined in the article doesn't make too much sense from a strategic perspective. At the very least, sure, 2015 is one data point that maybe that method of doing it doesn't work. But I think more than anything, it just proved that AJ Preller's method that offseason didn't work. I don't think it's indicative of anytime you increase payroll, you're not going to have an incremental increase in revenues that exceeds that. I think maybe the Padres were just bad at it once, but it seems like they're assuming that that can never work. And so that's that's an unfortunate strategic decision that you see the team make. And as a Padres fan, maybe that's just as maddening as hearing them complain about the ballpark and, and some of these other things, just that the fact that they're not making wise statistical decisions, which will have a really seemingly large impact on the future of the franchise. What did you think of that Preller transaction spree at the time? Because it was something that kind of captivated all of us because here are the Padres not usually making these kind of moves. And then all of a sudden here's A.J. Preller and the Padres are in on everyone and they're trading for everyone and they're signing guys. And even, I think, at the end of that offseason, we all looked at it and we thought, well, the Padres were maybe the most active team this offseason. They still don't project to be that great, really. And then, of course, they weren't good. And in retrospect, it seems like they set themselves back and they had to then sell all those guys and kind of rebuild and it just pushed back the timeline. But was it kind of fun, <laughs> at least when your yeah. team was was doing all this stuff? Because like we, we hear now, you know, there's all this criticism of teams that aren't doing anything and are just kind of sitting there at, you know, the 80 win range or whatever, or they're just deciding to focus on the future and not focus on the present. And this 2015 thing probably gives you both the the positives and the negatives of doing that kind of thing. Because on the one hand, must have been pretty fun for fans. On the other hand, it didn't work out and it probably would have been better just to rebuild and maybe they'd be even further along at this point if they hadn't done that. Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm a fan. It was extremely exciting. I think in the back of our minds, everyone knew this could fail. There were some people that were much more vocal about it likely to fail than than others, including the co-host on my podcast. I think he was much, much more bearish on the moves they were making than I was. You know, there were some moves that offseason that I think fans universally didn't really care for. The Matt Kemp trade, I think most of us didn't didn't really understand quite as much as, say, signing James Shields after all those moves. And, you know, some of the other moves they made, you know, I guess are slightly justifiable in retrospect. I think the Craig Kimbrell trade maybe has, has worked out a lot of the prospects we sent to them haven't really panned out and we were able to get Manny Margot and and some other prospects on a subsequent trade. So it's really a mixed bag. Uh, At the time, we were very excited, obviously. I mean, we, you know, we were going into the season with Justin Upton and Matt Kemp and Will Myers and, and it wasn't Brad Hopp playing first base and it wasn't, you know, all these, you know, terrible revolving door positions across the diamond. It was really just shortstop that we felt very weak at. We were still starting Alexi Amarista on opening day, but I think, you know, that season did teach us, you know, a little bit about, you know, the pitfalls of potentially spending. But again, I think it was just 
the fact that it was crammed into one off season and we had so many limited choices in ways to do it that we we really forced ourselves into trading valuable players for bad contracts with the Matt Kemp trade, for example, or trading, you know, very highly touted prospects like Trey Turner for slightly less valuable assets like Will Myers, just because there was no leverage. So it was, it was definitely very fun. I think I am not misspeaking when I say that most of the Padres community enjoyed it, even if it fizzled out by, you know, July when Bud Black was fired. But Mm -hmm. I think uh, in retrospect, it did serve a good lesson. I just hope that, you know, or it's unfortunate that I think ownership has taken maybe the wrong lesson. Not that spending can't work, just that spending so quickly with limited options is generally a bad strategy. Right. And I think uh, the good lesson to learn is don't trade a good young player for Matt Kemp. But I think we probably knew yes. that before <laughs> before the trade is even made. So by the terms of, of the collective bargaining agreement, uh, and this is, again, is something that, that Joe Sheehan wrote in his newsletter. Teams are actually incentivized to spend on their ballpark maintenance more than they are incentivized to spend on their roster, or at least they are somewhat secretly incentivized to spend on their ballpark as uh, as it's, in a sense, deductible. And now there is a section here. The Padres have, have spent tens of millions of dollars working on ballpark maintenance over the past few years. And the quote from Ron Fowler here, our goal when we took over was over the next 10 years to get the ballpark, Petco Park, looking like it was five years old and keep it there. This is a subjective question and kind of a dumb question, but have you noticed is, is, is your ballpark going experience improved? And to what extent does that even matter if the product on the field isn't improved or up to the standard that, that you're looking for? Yeah, so uh, I'm maybe not the best person to ask because I was boycotting the team for quite a while. During the <laughs> during the Morad years, at least, 2015 did serve to get me out of the boycott because whether or not it was a, a bright plan, it was at least some sort of strategy at spending money. And so it got me out to the ballpark. You know, you I think you would be lying if you said the ballpark now isn't improved compared to what it used to be. Certainly. I mean, they have made a number of improvements that, you know, the most obvious one is just a Jumbotron. He used to be a fairly small, low resolution screen with a whole bunch of advertisements that were static advertisements surrounding it. And now it's a giant behemoth, you know, very nice looking, pleasing Jumbotron. So, I mean, there's there's some very obvious improvements they've made. But when the Padres actually signed their agreement with the city of San Diego to build Peco Park, there were some some lines in the paperwork called the Joint Use Memorandum that actually mandated that the San Diego Padres would have to keep Peco Park as a first-class facility. And there's some definitions of first-class facility in there, but the, the point of this is just that they're actually required by the law that you know built Peco Park to do this. So it's it's one of those things where they're basically congratulating themselves for something they're obligated to do you know, it's like it's like congratulating yourself for brushing your teeth in the morning. It's it's not it's not something that I think Padres fans like to congratulate them on because they're they are required to do it. That's like how they got the stadium. Right. Mm-hmm. And would that I guess that would be a sort of follow similar lines as they're congratulating themselves for refinancing the debt that they already knew that they were going to be inheriting when they bought the team. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's the it's not necessarily that they're you know paying off the debt on more friendly terms and, and getting out from under that, that that bothers Padres fans. I think it's the complaining about it. And, you know, the fact that they purchased the team knowing this and said otherwise, right? Like you read the quote earlier about how they were overcapitalized, they weren't taking on any new debt, and so on and so forth. I think to now look back six years later or seven years later and blame some of these things that they knew when they bought the team but didn't disclose, you know, it, it just rings very hollow. It doesn't come off as a very satisfying excuse. Mm-hmm. And there's a line about this in the article, but I think it's worth pointing out that all this stuff about 
debt payments we're talking about is really dwarfed by the increase in the valuation of the franchise over this same span, which according to Forbes, and granted they are estimating and guessing, but they had the value of the Padres at $600 million at the time that the franchise was purchased in 2012 and is now doubled to $1.2 billion, which is not one of the more valuable MLB franchises, I don't think, but still, the value of the franchise has doubled in a relatively short span of time. So all this stuff about $12 million debt payments, I mean, it's not nothing, and granted, the valuation of the franchise only helps you so much if you're not actually selling the franchise. It's not necessarily money in your pocket, but still, like as a long-term investment, it has been incredibly successful for this ownership group over this period of time. So that can't be emphasized enough. Yeah, and and you know we we make that point fairly frequently when they when they pay down debt or they otherwise you know restructure these interest payments. You know, it's kind of like they're taking money out of one pocket which we've put in that pocket, right, through ticket sales, concession stands, through the television deal and us watching and all the advertisement stuff that really comes as a result of fan interest. They've taken that money and from one pocket of the Padres, they've basically paid off the debt and interest, which is really just putting it in their other pocket because the asset that they own, the team, is now more valuable. And yeah, I'm not sure if that whole $600 million increase, which is a Forbes estimate, can be attributed just to the debt. Obviously, the market's been very favorable since 2012, just in general. But, but yeah, it does illustrate the fact that even if the Padres themselves can show that their books are not balancing and that they're losing money in terms of a, you know, money coming in versus money coming out basis, that doesn't mean the owners are losing money because their asset can be appreciating in value, and that's really all they care about, right? And so, you know, I think the the main thing here is that what we're seeing as fans is that the ownership is putting the value of their asset in front of the actual on-field play, right? Because they have multiple things they can do with that money and they've chosen, unfortunately, to, you know, really take it out of one of their pockets and put it in their other. And it it has shown, certainly, with the quality of play on the field, but I think to actually have it, you know, spelled out in front of us, I'm not sure what they're trying to accomplish by showing us this, but uh, yeah, it's been it's been a very difficult couple days ingesting all this. Yeah, well, I wanted to ask you about what they may have accomplished. I mean, what percentage of fans do you think are looking at this and scrutinizing it to the depth that you are and are going line by line and saying, well, what about this? And this doesn't make sense. And these things don't add up. Or what percentage of readers of this article are just going, hey, look at the Padres. They've explained their numbers and here's why they couldn't spend. I mean, you know, not everyone wants to think about team finances in this level of detail and so they might just kind of buy the team line yeah it's and you know it's it's interesting because i'm a little siloed from all of the fans obviously I don't, i'm not a season ticket holder anymore and you know the the amount that i actually go to games and interact with fans has dwindled considerably given my disinterest in the way they've run the team over the past you know decade but Certainly on Padres Twitter, which I don't know if that's fully indicative of the fan base, it is very negative, right? And mm-hmm. uh, I have this unique position as, uh, you know, back in 2012, 2013, we released a documentary outlining the previous ownership groups, you know, lies and, and you know, frugality. And at the time, I, I don't know if, if there were too many people who felt the same way that I did. I think I helped open some people's eyes, but really I was just that one crazy person so far in the fringe that it made it okay for other people to have slightly more crazy ideas because at least they could point at someone and say, I'm not as crazy as that guy. But now uh, with this article, you know, granted, obviously we did a line by line, you know, reading of it and, and rebuttal on our podcast, but 
you know, that was because we were asked so much by so many people on Twitter to do it. So certainly there's been a large change over time, you know, in terms of how Padres fans interpret, you know, the ownership group and how they're not spending and so on. As far as how that relates to the average fan, I just, you know, it's just so hard to know how these Twitter communities relate to the Mm -hmm. fan base at large. Um, I did see that... (laughs) Kevin Acey in, in the Union Tribune, their article on Twitter had only 10 comments. So I don't know if that's because Facebook's dead or because no one just no one reads the Union Tribune anymore. You know, I think a lot of the people in San Diego have athletic subscriptions and read Dennis Lynn and, and some of the more local writers who have signed on there over the Union Tribune for baseball coverage. But in any case, yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard to really know. I, I can't imagine, though, that too many fans read this and took it at face value and actually believe it. It'll it'll be something that, you know, I'm I'm curious to see how it plays out over time. But at least in the small sphere that I have access to, it was taken very negatively. I didn't really see anyone who reacted positively to it, um, except, you know, maybe one or two accounts here or there that are all suspected to be Ron Fowler burner accounts. So <laughs> take that for what it's worth. <laughs> so this is a, a two part question and maybe a two part deep question, but the the first of it would be how much reinvestment from an ownership group this is of course all in in your own evaluation but how much reinvestment is enough where where is the line of of satisfaction versus just feeling like the owners are too concerned with lining their own pockets or increasing valuation etc where would you like to see the average owner come down in terms of spending on the on-field product yeah and it's a tough question you know as a Padres fan you just hope that they're you know, average, right? In terms of, I, I would say just percentage of revenue that you intake from, you know, everything baseball related. And, you know, if you're average in terms of percentage spend on that, and I think in baseball, it's around 50% of your revenue you spend on the actual MLB payroll, then, you know, I can at least be on board with that. But it's it's really difficult to, you know, put an actual figure out there because we don't truly have access to it. And even in these, you know, extreme cases where we get dead spin leaking an article, on books or we get the Padres quote opening their books you still only get a snapshot and it's only a snapshot that they want you to see and so you know it's really difficult from a from an accounting perspective to to look at that and say here's the exact figure you should be spending but you know we're really snake bitten in San Diego on this topic because the most recent sale of the team from the Jeff Morat group to the Ron Fowler Peter Seidler O'Malley group which was really kind of you know some of those previous owners stayed in the group but in any case there was a television deal that was signed just prior to the sale of the club where the San Diego Padres got a $200 million upfront payment on their television deal from Fox Sports San Diego. Now, the reason this is important is because it happened just before the sale of the team, which means the value of the team magically went up $200 million pretty much instantly because they got this liquid infusion of $200 million, which some owners, including Ron Fowler, used to then purchase a larger share of the team. And so basically the Padres, from a baseball perspective, instantly lost $200 million because that money didn't stay within the club. That money basically inflated the value of the team and the new owners coming on board paid more money as a result and then just took their cut from that $200 million. And so we've felt for quite some time that we've been cheated anyways. And so the percentage of revenue we would hope they would spend would exceed that because they've already used some of our revenue to buy the team itself. So... It's a pretty complicated answer from a Padres fan perspective because we've just been so screwed in the history of teams. Part of you know our uh, quabbles with the ownership group now is, uh, I don't know if you guys realize this, but a couple years ago, they tried to induct Bud Selig into the Padres Hall of Fame 
<laughs> which uh, for one, he, he didn't really speak very loudly when the Padres threatened to move in the 90s and John Morris was calling the Padres a free agent after 1999. And uh, the second one was that he blocked the sale of the Dodgers and got, you know, or not the sale of the Dodgers, right? He blocked the television deal that I think McCourt was going to use for similar reasons the Padres used the money to retain a higher ownership group and basically forced him to sell to what has turned out to be a very nice ownership group for Dodgers fans. But when the Padres had a similar thing happened, they blocked the sale to Jeff Morad, but they didn't block the sale to another group of owners or at least block the television deal from having this upfront payment that would then, of course, inflate the value of the franchise. So we, we have a lot of issues with, with these revenue questions because we're starting from not square one. We're starting from being so far in the red that even going forward, if they spent at 50% revenue, we would still feel a little cheated or, you know, league average. We would still feel a little cheated um, from that perspective. But I think from a fan perspective in general, you know, without seeing the books, it's so hard to tell. And, you know, an incremental add to the payroll could, you know, be offset by a, a larger increase in ticket sales and attendance if done correctly. So it's, it you know, a little bit of it also comes down to just how good the ownership group is spending money. Right. And the Potters have been bad at that. So the second part of this of this deep question, and this this part might be even deeper. I I'm a hockey fan. I like the Ottawa Senators. It's a situation where I love watching the team. I love watching the sport. I want to support them. And a lot of people, myself included, don't really care for the owner because the owner seems to be cash poor, etc. I don't need to go into detail about the Ottawa Senators, but it's a situation where, as a fan, you want to support the team, but you also wish that the team was under a different ownership group. Now I don't know nearly enough to just say that the Padres need new owners, etc. That's more your jurisdiction than, than mine, and maybe even more somebody else's jurisdiction than yours. But when you come into sports, you come in, of course, as a fan, and you just want to root for the local team, you want them to win, and you want to watch the game. That's the whole point. But then you also want to be a conscientious fan, and you want to have some means of holding ownership accountable if you feel like they're not doing enough. But of course, if fans collectively boycotted the San Diego Padres, maybe the Padres leave. Maybe they they go away or maybe they spend even less because there's just no support. And I know this is not unique to the Padres. We have seen people try to boycott the Pirates, for example, for similar reasons. So to you, what is the best way or what are the best ways to try to hold an ownership group accountable if you feel like they are not meeting up, uh, meeting their end of the bargain? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been boycotting them for similar reasons for quite a while. I mean, and, and I wouldn't say that it's like a hard and fast boycott. It's more like, there are many ways that I can spend the money that I earn. You know, do I want to spend it on very boring baseball? And the answer for me has always been no, um, I don't. And, you know, it's one thing where if there are young players coming up, I might want to go see them and maybe I will go to a game or two this year because Fernando Tatis Jr. comes up. But yeah, I think, you know, for it's just a general rule in life that I always put out there for people that you should spend money on things that you want to spend money on. And if for whatever reason, if you don't want to spend money on the Padres because of ownership, because you don't like the product on the field, well, then don't spend money on them. In terms of organizing a big big boycott, I'm not sure. Like like you said, there are other other ways that can go. And the Chargers just left town. So doing anything that would potentially risk the Padres leaving is something I don't want to do. Although they're, they're pretty set in San Diego based on the terms of their agreement on Peco Park. Uh, I do want new owners for the Padres. I think I was very open to the new ownership group when they when they got the job. But over the course of the past six years, through all of the various things I've talked about before, plus the fact that, you know, things have just not worked out the way that I think they've spelled out things would work out. At this point, I would prefer to see a new ownership group. 
whether or not it would make a difference that that I don't know. I mean, if you had a, I think if you had a critical mass of people, if you were able to actually tap into their renewal season ticket numbers and, you know, gin up five, 10,000 season ticket holders to come out and, and support the boycott, whether it's for a few games just to drive down concession sales and, and get the Padres to at least respond to it, or whether it's to actually get attendance to sink so far that they feel the only way they can get people out is to spend on the team. You know, I would certainly join that boycott. But again, my, my concerns are that this ownership group is so bad at making strategic decisions that unfortunately that they would do something rash, like potentially trading a bunch of their valuable prospects for a bad contract just to get people out of the ballpark. So there's a bunch of variables in there that I'm taking into consideration. In the meantime, I'm advocating for everyone who's a Padres fan, if you don't like what you've seen, not to go to games. But in terms of organizing a very large boycott, we might try something, you know, something that's just to get attention national level. Maybe it's like a linking of arms around the stadium on opening day so that, you know, you have to cross the picket line of fans. I don't know. We might try something, <laughs> but I, I think uh, a full-scale boycott, unfortunately, with irrational owners can can go very sour. So we're trying to to weigh the options. Mm-hmm. You know, when I talk periodically about other fan bases and how maybe they exaggerate their suffering and, you know, relative to other teams, it's really a, a franchise like the Padres that I'm thinking of who don't really have a reputation as like, oh, the, you know, beleaguered Padres fan base. Like no one really, I wouldn't say they come to mind immediately as like the the team, the fans that have suffered the most. But Padres have been around now for 50 seasons. I believe they have 14 winning seasons in that span. They have made the playoffs five times. They have won two pennants, not since 1998. They have never won a World Series. This is a team with an extremely long track record of mediocrity and has not had more than a 60 or 70 something win season since 2010. And even that was kind of a blip. I mean, how do you look back at the legacy of Padres fandom, even aside from the ownership issues that we've been talking about, although, of course, those are connected to the results of the team? But it's such an <laughs> undistinguished record, I guess, compared to some other teams that kind of consider themselves the the long-suffering fans of Franchise X. It seems like the Padres have about as good a case as any among teams that have been around for the past 50 years. Yeah, you know, I keep thinking that, that, that San Diego will get the reputation as a downtrodden sports town once, you know, the Red Sox win a World Series or once the Cubs win the World Series. But they right. always shift to another city, and I'm always <laughs> like, what about us? Like, we we just yeah. lost the sports franchise. <laughs> Nate Colbert you, is still the all-time home run leader for yeah, the San Diego if, Padres. Like, I <laughs> if you go to Baseball Reference, you know, and you go to where all the teams are, and you just sort reverse standings by their win-loss record as a franchise all time, yeah. the Padres are the losingest, worse than the Tampa Bay Rays, which is surprising given how bad the Rays were when they started their franchise. We're very aware of this history. Um, one of the <laughs> one of the things we've been driving home this offseason on Bryce Harper and Manny Machado is that. You know, Bryce Harper has already accumulated 30 wins above replacement in his career, which would rank him third all time on the Padres list behind Tony Gwynn and Dave Winfield. You know, and he's put up a nine war season, which would rank second all time for individual seasons on the Padres behind only Kevin Brown's 1998. And we got him for one year, you know. So, yeah, we're certainly downtrodden. You know, as you grow up in San Diego and root for the Padres, I think I was fortunate that I was born in 87 and. Most of my childhood was spent on, you know, not terrible Padres teams. And then we had, of course, a small run of 
not futility with uh, the 96 Padres winning the division and Ken Caminetti winning MVP and then 98 going to the World Series. I mean, that's that's really what's kept me as a fan is just those memories. We had some small blips when we you know moved into Petco Park, but other than that, it's been a very long period of watching bad baseball. And the latest generation of San Diegans growing up, that's all they know, right? And you know, I, I'm starting a family soon, and the question I have to ask myself is, am I going to raise my son to be a Padres fan? And it's it's one of those ones where, you know, there are certainly some good lessons to learn about life by watching the Padres, especially about disappointment and tempering expectations and, you know, the false illusion of hope sometimes. Like, these are actually, like, you know, it's almost like an Aesop's fable that I can teach my child in terms of watching baseball. But at the same time, there's so much there's so much negative to rooting for the Padres, you know, perennial disappointment. And it's not even just having a good team and having them fail in the playoffs. That's one way to be disappointing in a team. It's just the overall futility of the franchise from everything from choosing which players to have to drafting and developing players to the way they market their product off the field to, you know, there's very bland blue uniforms when obviously everyone wants the uniforms to be brown. (laughs) And, you know, just you can just go down the list of of items. And I think if you ranked where the Padres, you know, stacked up against the rest of Major League Baseball in each of these categories, they would be consistently towards the bottom. And so, yeah, I mean, as a Padres fan, it (laughs) You, you've definitely are downtrodden. We've started to complain when we're not at the top of that list. We, I think Seattle's the latest one to, to grace the top of that list, even though the Seahawks just won a Super Bowl. We've seen Cleveland on that list, but at least, you know, the Indians have been pretty decent and the Cavs just won an NBA title. So the San Diego market has never won a professional championship unless you include the 1963 AFL Chargers prior to the, uh, the merge. And uh, so we're waiting anxiously on our first pro sports title. Mm-hmm. And yeah, unfortunately, now we only have the Padres, which are uh, the losingest baseball franchise of all time, uh, <laughs> at least by active team standards. So yeah, I think it really just must be the weather. Like no one can feel any sympathy for, for San Diego residents because <laughs> everyone thinks it's a paradise. Yeah, I mean, I, so I just lived in Delaware for the last three years. I worked for a bank, and I was on the East Coast, living out there, and recently moved back to San Diego. And you know, all the things they say about San Diego weather are true. Like it, it rained a couple of days last week, and that was like seen as a major inconvenience. But <laughs> it was probably very good for our drought. <laughs> but in any case, yeah, I mean, that's that's the general excuse that's thrown out. That's thrown out there. At least you have the weather, which, <laughs> I mean, it's true. But you know what? I would trade. Uh, I would trade a good solid month or two of of sun for snow if it got me a championship. At the end of the day, I would definitely do that. (laughs) I like bad weather, so I would not trade with you. But (laughs) emblematic, I think, of the Padres standing is, you know, I was reading in October a 20th anniversary retrospective of, quote unquote, the pitch that was in the San Diego Union Tribune. This was about the 2-2 pitch from Mark Langston to Tino Martinez in game one of the 98 World Series that should have been a called strike and wasn't. And then Tino hit a grand slam, and that was kind of the end of the Padres in that series. I hadn't thought of that pitch in years. I mean, I was at that game. I was 11 years old. I was rooting for the Yankees at the time. I was quite happy with the outcome of that pitch. But I was not even aware that that pitch had taken on this kind of legacy in the memories of Padres fans because it really wasn't that. It wasn't like game seven and it's the bottom of the ninth Mm -hmm. or something. It it was game one against one of the best teams of all time. Padres were probably not going to win that series even if the pitch went their way. 
But the fact that this has become a big thing that you can just say the pitch to Padres fans and evidently they know that it's this pitch, it's because, well, they haven't been back in 20 years since. So what else are you going to do the, you know, alternate history of because they haven't gotten anywhere close to to that point in the year since? Yeah, you know, I know exactly where I was when the pitch happened. And I think, you know, part of the reason why that sticks is obviously the, the point you just mentioned where we just don't have too many moments like that. I mean, there's a Matt Holiday at home plate, which would be right. probably up there right with it. But of course, that was a playing game for the playoffs. It wasn't the World Series. Mm-hmm. You know, I think part of part of it is too. yeah, we got swept in that World Series. But if you squint hard enough and if you go with me here. You know, that pitch to Tino Martinez would have been strike three. It would have ended the inning. The Padres, I believe, were up four. And so that grand slam tied the game. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a four-run lead going to the Padres' vaunted bullpen that year. We might have snuck out game one. And, of course, obviously, there are many ways this could turn out. But And then Trevor Hoffman blew game three at home, right? And obviously, I can't snap my fingers and get rid of a blown save. But at least from a – if you're following your fan graphs, a winning percentage graph, you know, live during those games, obviously, fan graphs didn't exist in 98. But – if you had been, I think you would have been surprised by how close, you know, that series actually was for it being a sweep. And so as a Padres fan, I can look back and be like, man, it was an almost a 2-2 series. If that one pitch was called differently and Trevor Hoffman had a, you know, didn't blow game three, we would have been right in this World Series. It's just kind of the woulda, coulda, shoulda that Padres fans do for everything, including, I don't know, trading Robbie Alomar and, you know, the list goes trading Anthony Rizzo. The list goes on and on. But yeah, that, that pitch has certainly taken a lot of lore. I think part of it is the fact that the Padres, after the World Series that year, put out a documentary about the season. It was actually a very well-done documentary. And they focused on that pitch so much in that documentary that any of the the diehard fans who got that documentary for Christmas the following year, like I did, and you watched that a couple times growing up, you just it stuck with you because they focused on it so much. But yeah, strike three to Tino Martinez. Everyone everyone who's a, a Padres fan should know that. We all remember it. So mm-hmm. in two thousand seven I was I was I grew up in San Diego and a, a friend of mine is a big Padres fan and he and his family got their first ever H D TV and they were plugging it in and they turned it on so that they could watch game one sixty three, Padres versus Rockies. Eight six Padres going into the bottom of the thirteenth. I don't need to remind you what happened. You already brought yeah. it up, but I think that uh, I think that HDTV has had a negative association in that family uh, for for going on twelve years now. So I wanted to ask, and this is this is going to be kind of subjective, but it's something I haven't been able to get my head around. As you mentioned, the uh, the Chargers have have left town. I went mm-hmm. to a San Diego Gulls game over Christmas break. That's very different. It's not the same kind of uh, sporting environment. Do you think that it's a net? Positive or negative for the Padres that the Chargers are effectively out of out of the market? I think it's a negative. And, and you know, I wasn't sure how it would work out at first, um, whether some of those San Diego Chargers season ticket holders would take up more interest in baseball and go to Padres games. But I think really what's happened is that a lot of the, the negative attention that may have been spent on the Chargers with apathy being spent on the Padres has now shifted because we're essentially a one sports, you know, one sport town. We do have the goals and we have the San Diego fleet now for some terrible football league that will be defunct in five years. And we have uh, the San Diego seals for lacrosse, but by and large, no one really cares about those sports, right? It's not, it's not one of the major sports. And so a lot of focus is spent on the Padres and take, for example, Kevin AC, who wrote this article, he used to be the, uh, the chargers beat writer. And when the chargers left, obviously a lot of the local media, they were scrambling to find new positions it turns out Kevin Acey did the Los Angeles Angels beat way back in, I think, like the 80s or 90s or something. So 
he was slightly more qualified than maybe some of his co-workers to take on the Padres beat. And so now they've sort of increased their Padres coverage. And, and you know, I think it's interesting. You know, the, the Padres haven't been good since the Chargers left. So maybe when they start to be good, some of that money that was spent on the Chargers will go into the Padres because, you know, the money is fungible. It's all part of someone's entertainment budget. And whether they use it on sports or something else, you know, I, I don't know. But uh, I, there's at least a chance that it works out positively for the Padres. But at least from a, an attention perspective, everyone certainly is paying attention to the Padres. And mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, given where they are as a franchise, if that's if that works out to their advantage. Obviously, if they were good, it would. But at this point, it, you know, it, it doesn't. But I think I think I can see pros and cons. And, and I don't think it's I don't think anyone can present an, an argument to me that would convince me that it certainly was good or certainly was bad. I think it'll it'll ebb and flow based on how the team's doing. So we've been dwelling on the negative in the Padres' past, which maybe is inevitable because it's a lot easier to find the negative than the positive in the past of the Padres. But the present, aside from the ownership and spending issues we've been talking about, there is a lot to be excited about. Regardless of whether ownership actually spends, they have now finally put together a collection of young players that seems like it could be good even without costing that much money. So what is your mood, the mood of the Padres fan base in general when it comes to what seems to be the consensus best farm system in baseball? How far away do you think the Padres are? Was there a belief that the Padres should spend this winter or was the thinking, well, maybe next winter is the time to spend? Because it's always hard to know, okay, when are we done with being in rebuilding mode and when are we in investment mode? So what's the the mood of the Padres fan base when it comes to all that? Yeah, I mean, everyone's very excited about the prospects. I don't think you can find a Padres fan who doesn't know more about the prospects that the Padres have than they ever knew. You know, we have fans who used to never pay attention to the minor league club who can now name you their 25th best prospect, for example. You know, and and certainly when you're in a small market or a smaller-ish market, I think the Padres are probably something like, you know, the the high 20s for, for market size you certainly have to build from within and you know with a lot of these international free agent signings and draft picks you know they're always a lottery ticket and and you know it's a wait until i see it sort of approach but they have just so many and there are so many national media outlets saying that they have all these top prospects that it's very hard not to believe everything you're hearing and and seeing in the minor league box scores for example and that's really fun because we've never had that like we've never had a good farm system really i know you know, Keith Law might have rated us first a couple of years ago, but that was really based on, you know, the depth of like number four and five starting pitchers, not on the entire farm system like it is today. And so there's just a whole lot of excitement for that reason. You know, we we tend not to produce good players for whatever reason. We've just been snake bitten with our draft picks or we've just had bad scouting in place for a very long period of time. So I think, you know, we're we're all bullish on the future, certainly. I think where fans start to differ is when that future is realistic, right? And so this year we expect to see Fernando Tatis Jr., who's, you know, the crown jewel of our farm system. Luis Urias is already up. We would expect to see Logan Allen, Chris Paddock, and some of the pitching prospects come up through the minor league system this year. I think, you know, where where the, the spending question comes in is, you know, if they're not going to go after some of these youngish free agents who could supplement that core, guys like Manny Machado and Bryce Hopper, who are 26, who, if you look at the Padres' books after 2022, the only thing they're committed to is Eric Hosmer. And like, for example, Fernando Tatis Jr. won't even hit arbitration until 2023. So there certainly is a lot of financial flexibility. 
If you're not going to spend on a 26-year-old mega superstar, former first overall pick, with a very long track record of being good already in Major League Baseball, when would you ever spend? And when you decide you want to spend, are you sure there are going to be players available who are equally good and young that fit you know, what you're doing long term? I think we, we struggle with why they're not pursuing that. And also we look at moves like, I don't know, last year signing Clayton Richard to a two-year extension, signing Kaz Makita out of Japan, this year signing Ian Kinsler. You know, these some of these one-off moves that they aren't a lot of money, but they don't really make too much sense in the grand scheme of things. I think when you're a team not expecting to be good, what you're hoping for is to see your franchise at least try to develop players, be it guys who are post-hype sleepers last year. Christian Villanueva was a good example, former top 100 prospect, you know, blocked in the Cubs system. Why not give him a chance to to play every day and see what he is? And I think we learned he's a useful major league player against left-handed pitching. You know, why not do that in more of these positions instead of bringing in old veterans that you don't really, you know, I, I don't know what Ian Kinsler could possibly add this year that would be worth it. I mean, I think the only thing that could possibly happen that that is positive for me and Kinsler is that he makes he ends up with trade value at the deadline, but but how much really, you know? And I think those are the sort of moves we see that that don't add up. And it's unfortunate because, you know, it's it is a sensitive part of the the organization's development. I think we would have liked to see them tank more in the past few years. And and by tank I don't mean outright purposefully lose games and put a bad product on the field, but when you're spending money for middling players to increase your, you know, your wins total from say 72 to 74, you're really only costing yourself draft capital going forward. And so for all these years of being bad and and building up the farm system and splurging in the international free agent market and so on, the highest pick we've gotten is the third pick. It turned into Mackenzie Gore. He's one of our best pitching prospects, but next year we're picking, I think sixth or seventh. And, you know, we picked ninth another one of these years. And it's like, you know, the difference between in value between the first and second pick in the draft and pick nine is, you know, almost like $10 million in terms of future value on the field. And so these sort of strategic macro level decisions that the team makes, you know, I don't think most of the fans like it, but I think the the part of building within, we all, we all get it and we're all on board. We just wish that in addition to doing that, there were other things that were do, they were doing that made sense in that context, right? And I think that's where we're struggling. Obviously, we're all excited for whatever year these prospects start to actually produce. We've been told different, you know, years. I think back in 2015 when they started this quote-unquote, you know, plan of building from within again, I think we were told 2018, then it became 2019. Now, the latest article this morning from Kevin Acey says 2022. So, you know, the goalposts keep moving on that, but we're all excited for the farm. There's no question about that. So the last thing we wanted to ask you, you you had mentioned for someone like Tatis Jr. is likely to not be arbitration eligible until 2023. And it's not a probably not a coincidence that when you look at the structure of Eric Hosmer's contract, he goes from making $20 million a season down to 13 in the final three years of his deal. Seems like the Padres are probably allowing for a little more flexibility when their young players start getting more expensive, provided they develop as they are expected to. But I wanted to circle back to Hosmer because we have heard all about Royals fans' experiences watching Eric Hosmer. We heard all about his on-field play, his first-base defense, his intangibles. Now he's played for a new team. Year one of eight is out of the way. 12.5% of Eric Hosmer's contract is in the books. I was curious, having... I, I know you 
didn't go to many Padres games, but you're still paying attention to the Padres. What was your overall experience watching year one of Eric Hosmer? Is there more to him than the numbers would lead on, or is he just a replacement level first baseman? Yeah, so far I would say there's there's not. I mean, Fangrass has done a ton of articles about how if Eric Hosmer changed his launch angle, it would you know increase his value significantly. And I think that's the, the small glimmer of hope I'm holding on to here for the eight year contract that you know over some period of time he'll try a new strategy at the plate. And all the velocity that he generates off the bat will translate into above replacement numbers. But in that first year, obviously, we were very disappointed with his output. You know, the the Padres touted his, quote, prestige value when they signed him, uh, which we've sort of made into a recurring meme and joke on Padres Twitter. But yeah, I mean, the signing just didn't make sense anyways to begin with. I mean, it did from a perspective of he was the youngest free agent available last offseason. And we were somewhat disappointed with Will Myers and Will Myers had experience in the outfield but now you look at it and you know the Padres one of their top prospects Josh Naylor is chomping at the bit in double a you know there are some projection systems out there that rank him higher than Eric Hosmer this year and it's year two of eight of Eric Hosmer's uh, contract so yeah it was it was certainly a disappointing season um, no question I think some of us hold out hope that you know if you look at his career he, he seems to be an odd and even numbered year oscillating player I don't know if that's an actual predictive trait or if that's just a happenstance of randomness in baseball, but I think, you know, there are certainly some fans that, that believe that there's a chance that he still makes good on that contract. I think that the odds are pretty low, unfortunately, but yeah, I mean, like you said, it's still, it's still not that much money. I, I think, you know, Padres fans just, we've never really seen the team spent too much. And so we look at $13 million in 2023 and, and gasp, but there are players in baseball that will be earning upwards of $30 million that year. So in context, it's not quite so horrible, but there's no question that uh, we were quite disappointed with Eric Cosmer. And I, and I bet you, if you got, you know, ownership candidly to speak about it, they would, they would agree with that too, that it was a, not a great season. And honestly, I, I don't see the first base defense that Royals fans talked about like just watching them. And obviously I'm just one person and I'm not a professional scout or anything, but I didn't see anything there that made me believe that the analytics that we've developed over a long period of time is magically incorrect for only Eric Hosmer. But again, I'm not a scout. Well, David, I coming from San Diego I, and being a, a longtime Mariners fan, I saw both sides of the rivalry and I always kind of felt like the two teams were joined at the hip in terms of the, the misery that they just laid upon their fans. And so <laughs> I don't know who it's, who's going to have a, a more promising season in 2019. It looks like it's likely to be the Padres, but at the moment we have two teams still in the middle of a rebuild. So as always, the Padres and Mariners are racing for another playoff berth. And in the meantime, we thank you very much for coming on and being available. Appreciate it, and we wish our natural rivals a strong season, regardless. We, we, we like to root for the Mariners, I think, a little bit, but just because they're not the Yankees and Red Sox. But. It's easy to root for the Mariners because they're terrible. Yeah, yeah they're, they're endearing. Well, after we finished recording, the Reds did indeed get their man. Sonny Gray went from the Yankees to the Reds for second base prospect Shed Long and the competitive balance round A pick. Yankees also sent Raver San Martin, an A-ball starting pitcher, to Cincinnati. And the Reds then extended Gray for three years and a total of $30.5 million. And that will take him through 2022. He's already under contract through 2019. And then, of course, Jerry DePoto got involved, immediately traded for Shed Long from the Yankees 
Yankees in exchange for center field prospect Josh Stowers, the Mariners' second round pick last year. So hey, it's a Mariners trade too. Everything's a Mariners trade. If Mariners fans are interested in hearing about their new second base prospect Shed Long, check out Effectively Wild listener C. Trent Rosecrans' podcast, Great American Dream. He did a 12-part series a couple of years ago talking about life in the minor leagues using Shed Long as the lens. I will link to that. So that will do it for today. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already done so. Thomas Neil Blank, Eric Ensminger, Eric Clemetti, Andy Wang, and David Meyer. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Your ratings and reviews are very much appreciated. Keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can pre-order my book, The MVP Machine, comes out late this spring. Sam Miller has now read the manuscript, says he really enjoyed it. It's very good, thinks it's going to do well, but it won't do well unless you go get it. So we will be back to talk to you a little later this week. Thank you.